Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining. Today is June 28th, 2023. Welcome to the Regiment, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and our guests discuss the latest public health issues. Listen to learn how pharmacists and pharmacy students like us can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Ashley Shirello, a doctor pharmacy student in my final year at the University of Rhode Island, working with Dr. Bradford, as well as the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Jeff Rapperg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice and clinical research at the College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. As a reminder to our listeners, the opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and guests do not represent the opinions of the United States or probably the Canadian government as well, the Rhode Island Department of Health, nor the University of Rhode Island. Thank you, Dr. Bradford, for the introduction. I hope you are excited about today's discussion about what other substances are being found in street drug supply. A brief discussion about different technologies and workflow used to test drug samples, how and where drug checking can be implemented, including community pharmacists, and how people who use drugs feel about using these services. Right. Thanks for that. going to be an exciting podcast here. So today's guest speaker is none other than Jared Austin, who received Canada's first federal exemption for a drug checking service through his organization, Lantern Services. We'll be sure to highlight that on all of our socials here. So Jared, thanks so much for joining us today. Please introduce yourself and tell us about your background. Yeah, so I'm really excited to share my knowledge and experience relating to drug checking as a pharmacist with you guys. So here's a little bit about my professional life. So I am a licensed pharmacist in the province of British Columbia in Canada, and I graduated in 2015 from the University of Saskatchewan, which is in the hometown of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And for those who are not familiar where Saskatchewan is, it's the big rectangular province north of Montana and North Dakota. I graduated in 2015. I had to evacuate to Victoria, to British Columbia on the west coast of Canada in search of rainforest and ocean. And I acknowledge and respect the fact that I am calling from the traditional and unceded lands of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Masonic peoples. It is here that I worked for five years with a wonderful team at a dedicated pharmacy called STS Pharmacy that is owned by and managed by a rather amazing husband and wife duo. Pharmacy focused on serving those experiencing homelessness, dealing with mental health issues, and people experiencing problematic substance use. And this pharmacy dispensed a high volume of opioid agonist therapy and later on focused on safe supply as well. Pharmacy was a very lively place that built a great sense of community and really gave me a lot of experience as a frontline worker in a drug overdose or toxic drug supply crisis. It was through working with this population in about 2016 that the headlines of fentanyl adulteration became kind of reified through my direct interactions with our patient base. People would stop coming to the pharmacy and I would learn a day or two later that they had overdosed and died. And it made for a heavy environment with a very real danger out there. It's one thing to read about overdose rates in the newspaper, but it's quite another to work so closely with it. So how did you end up becoming a harm reduction advocate? The concepts of harm reduction were not taught to me during my schooling, but the more I worked in this area, the more clear to me that harm reduction made sense. Treating everyone as an individual, meeting people where they're at, and not expecting people to fully behave how you might hope them to behave as a healthcare worker is all part of it. And to me, harm reduction includes holding space for folks in a trauma-informed manner, um, building community, and advocating for people in the various systems we all must navigate. And you know, harm reduction includes distributing naloxone kits and training on how to use them, distributing safer use supplies, and reducing kind of adverse effects relating to substance use. To me, harm reduction kind of feels like taking action against a somewhat broken system to provide care 
for those who need it. Yeah, I mean, back to the pharmacy, working so closely with our drug using and often street and trench patient base, listen to their concerns and begin fentanyl strip testing, performing fentanyl strip tests at the pharmacy. And it was at this time, there was no exemption to be granted for this type of work. But in the context of overdose and death, we did make the decision to go ahead and provide this service as healthcare workers in the interest of public safety. And as time passed, we began getting more and more requests for the service and began publishing the results on our Twitter page. And soon we began noticing other demographics entering our pharmacy and asking for fentanyl strip tests and naloxone training. So this is any people from high school and university students to working professionals to concerned parents. So we really saw an uptake in this type of service, which was interesting. Uh, and there's a quick story. So I will always remember there was a time when a group of high school age girls came into the pharmacy for a naloxone training. And I took them to the back and began teaching them the signs of an opioid overdose and how to administer breath to somebody who's unconscious and talking about naloxone. About midway through the training, one of them broke down crying and they all began sobbing. And one of them explained between sobs that their friend actually had died from an overdose the week prior. And that was why they were there getting the training in the first place. One of the things you mentioned is something we've talked about on the rotation, which is trauma-informed care, another concept that directly applies to the populations you're providing care to. And my vision is all pharmacists should and, and will provide care to in a trauma-informed manner. Can you, can you just define what that means? Yeah, to me, trauma-informed care is just recognizing that people, like myself included, we all carry various amounts of trauma and experiences that we've lived in our lives, and that can either be integrated with and related to in healthy ways, or sometimes it's not, and then that can lead to certain patterns or destructive behaviors that can go on for the rest of someone's life. Trauma-informed care is kind of being aware of that, holding space for people's behaviors and patterns and, you know, Hopefully one day they can kind of deal with those things and move forward. And what led you to found your organization, Lantern Services? Lantern Services was actually born out of necessity. Eventually, the College of Pharmacists of BC got wind of what, what drug checking we were doing in the pharmacy setting, and they actually sent us a sternly worded letter to stop providing the service. It was very disappointing to cease the service amidst a public health crisis while we were providing this seemingly innovative and well-received service we had to stop. So there was people for weeks and months afterwards phoning, asking, stopping in to check in on the service, and we had to put a halt on it. And I know as a healthcare worker, I, kind of my goal I'm there is I want to help people improve the health outcomes of whoever comes through uh, my door, and drug checking did really feel impactful to that end. Nevertheless, we did oblige the college, and we stopped providing this service. Uh, and the letter hinted at the possibility of a federal exemption to allow for this work. So that prompted me to investigate that option. So uh, yeah, I learned there was something called the Section 56 exemption to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act offered by Health Canada. After a year and a half of applying and for this exemption with back and forth correspondence to Health Canada, undertaking renovations in the basement of the same building of a pharmacy, and after a final in-person inspection, Health Canada did grant my uh, organization, Lantern Services, Canada's first Section 56 exemption for drug checking purposes, which was pretty exciting and cool, and I didn't fully know what I was getting involved with. 
And uh, this was about the time that the University of Victoria received their federal grant to study drug checking technology. So the two co-investigators there, Dr. Bruce Wallace and Dr. Dennis Hoare, reached out to me to work together. So I began working with their team. I spent a few years helping uh, the University of Victoria establish their drug checking service called the Vancouver Island Drug Checking Project. I also volunteered since about 2017 at a variety of electronic music festivals in British Columbia, providing drug checking services, so very different context than in the community. Lantern's exemption was leveraged to further enable development of Vancouver Island University's paper spray mass spectrometry methods. And in that small, tiny room of Lantern, we ran over 2,000 samples. What I've experienced through drug checking and all the legal barriers and all that stuff, I've really kind of made it one of my missions of trying to make this type of exemption more accessible in BC and across Canada. And to that end, had some success and just talking to different organizations and advising them how to proceed uh, with the applications. And yeah, I mean, I just want to take this moment too to acknowledge I've had the privilege of working with so many talented and caring people along the way. So currently, I work as a freelance pharmacist in the community here in Victoria. Current experiences, I've spoken at different conferences on the topics of federal exemptions, um, drug checking messaging and training, and putting forward models for harm reduction focus. I am also the co-author of the Drug Resource and Education Project Drug Checking Manual or Dread Project Manual. Through the Dread Project, I also provide in-person drug checking training in Canada to its legend drug checking programs across Canada. I just want to disclaim that I'm speaking from my own experiences when I've read and learned and done through experience and uh, working with the different environments. Thank you for introducing yourself and thank you for joining us today. I'd like to start today's discussion first by giving our listeners an introduction to drug checking and its importance in harm reduction. According to the Food and Drug Administration, an adulterated product is one that includes, and I quote, filthy, putrid, or decomposed substance. Adulterants are being used as cutting agents in street drugs and psychoactive drugs, used to increase profit by using cheaper products that look similar and obtaining more doses, and also adulteration may be utilized to enhance, modify, or prolong drugs. Different than regulated medications that you buy over-the-counter or obtain from a pharmacy, people are unaware what is in their drugs or substances that they buy and consume. Harm reduction services engage with people using drugs and prevent overdoses. These services recognize that not everyone is willing or able to withdraw from substance use. Rather than preventing the use of substances, harm reduction provides services such as supervised consumption sites, sterile injection equipment, and naloxone. By providing these services, we are not only able to educate drug users, but we can reduce the number of life-threatening infections and overdoses. Drug checking aims in harm reduction because it allows buyers and users of a substance to check the contents of a drug supply, ideally prior to consumption, and take steps to use it more safely, such as using less, using more slowly, using with a friend, having naloxone on hand, or all of the above. So what is the difference exactly between drug testing and drug checking? Drug testing uses a biological sample, uh, such as blood or urine, to detect the presence of a substance. So typically drug testing is often utilized in places such as the workplace or sports teams or law enforcement to identify potential drug use and enforce rules against them. Um, so it's a bit more on the enforcement side and uh, policing side, whereas drug checking, on the other hand, uh, refers to when a substance is chemically analyzed to determine what active ingredients or is or isn't present, as well as diluents. Um, so there's different words. You said cutting agents or bulking agents. Sometimes the word adulterants is used. So just to explain a bit more of 
drug checking spoke to the dread project work that we're doing with the manual so we do write a bit on this but it has drug checking has three core pillars so one it is a harm reduction service safe and inclusive space to ask questions and obtain information about substances a big utility of drug checking is its ability to reduce stigma that surrounds substance use second core pillar that is a technical service so a variety of instruments and technologies are used according to their best practice to give insights on what the substance may or may not contain and the third pillar is that drug checking is a community service so drug checking should not necessarily be a standalone service uh, rather it's best paired with other health services such as overdose prevention sites supervised consumption sites or safe supply clinics, uh, peer user group um, at festivals, so different places where people can ask. Drug checking is provides quality control on an unregulated market, and I believe the FDA's definitions are meant to apply to the regulated market, but it is not a stretch to apply these definitions to the unregulated market that drug checking looks at. I mean, to me, it appears that the FDA could potentially update their definition of adulterant to include maybe the words unexpected or unlisted. You know, in the world of drug checking, you'll find in the street supply, there's a variety of diluents from innocuous and benign, such as sugars or topical anesthetics or things like that, um, to uh, actually psychoactive uh, medications or substances with physiological effects. In rare cases, there are potentially dangerous uh, additives um, that could be life-threatening in certain circumstances. So that being said, often the most dangerous ingredient in the drug we're checking is the drug itself, as many of these substances carry their own risks. So it's very clear that drug checking is a great harm reduction overdose preventative strategy that we need to further implement in healthcare. Worldwide, we are seeing an increase in both the dangerous and unpredictable drug supply, largely due to the cutting agents being used that users are usually unaware of. By providing a service that allows people to fully know what is in their substance prior to consumption, we are seeing a reduction in drug overdoses. Studies support that with an increase in the availability of drug checking services, we are also seeing an increase in the utilization of other harm reduction services available, such as HIV testing and treatment for opioid use disorder. So why exactly do we need drug checking? As we know, uh, there is a drug overdose and toxic drug supply crisis happening all throughout uh, both here in Canada and where you guys are at in the United States. Drug checking is needed because it can both provide information to the individual service user and as well it can provide more aggregated data to inform the conversation on the whole. So just to expand a bit on that, so individually drug checking enables people to make informed decisions in regards to if they want to consume the substance after being provided with the true chemical composition and identity of the components. That's kind of the technical side, but also on the social side, um, drug checking interaction can lead to questions about the substance, safer use supplies can be given and education can be provided. Um, all of these can help reduce overdose risks and pervert prevent adverse drug reactions. These individual drug checking results can then be collated to provide more impactful reviews of the local drug supply. Just to touch on an overarching reason of why drug checking is needed, um, that it actually really reduces the stigma uh, when discussing substance use. You know, as a pharmacist, when working as a pharmacist in a traditional pharmacy, uh, I can count on maybe less than one hand how many times a person has asked me any questions relating to illicit substances. You know, it was only after we at STS Pharmacy began providing drug checking that we began receiving phone calls asking about drug interactions between their pharmaceutical medications and the illicit medications they planned on taking. The people had heard of drug checking 
heard of the drug checking work we were doing and they felt comfortable asking us their questions. So to me, it really stuck as a huge counseling opportunity that was not being discussed due to stigma. Pharmacists who are touted as drug experts, yet the stigma of consuming illegal drugs uh, keeps people from reaching out and asking for help or advice. Um, so it's interesting with drug checking, however, the drugs are literally out on the table and there's a bit of a, like a liberating and taboo feeling to this and people feel uh, trust in you to whip out their drugs for you to test and it allows for some real conversations to happen. This really parallels the podcast we actually just recorded this morning on, on cannabis drug interactions and it, it's always good to just, I always love comparing US and can Canadian um, drug policy and yet we still have the same unsafe supply epidemic, but uh, not only is naloxone finally going to be over the counter here in the U.S., it's been over the counter for several years in Canada as a harm reduction tool. We were talking earlier about everything you're saying about trust and sharing things and how one of the things I was bringing up is that, you know, somebody gets admitted to the emergency department, they're not going to say that they use cannabis, right? And so then we don't have yeah. all the information and we're not, like you said, you can count on less than one hand the people saying, oh yeah, and I also you know, take this over the counter, or I also use crack on the weekends or whatever, like, yeah, nobody's going to say that not going to happen. But if they're like, I want to see if there's fentanyl in my in my cocaine, they're they're going to come to you and and have a, a much better holistic overall health approach that as a pharmacist, what would you say is a direct example of the health utility that drug checking provides to the service user? Yeah, I mean, speaking as a community pharmacist, I would say, you know, relating back to the care that we provide, it's relatively uneventful. <laughs> Usually it's like the mitigation of chronic or long-term disease states, such as diabetes or hypertension or coronary artery disease, which, you know, is a clear and present danger, but the health outcomes of these interventions are dispersed over a really long time frame. So the actual impact of this type of care is not really observable. You know, pharmaceutical treatments for acute disease states are more observable, such as mitigating pain for a broken bone or bone fracture or providing corticosteroids for an individual, you know, atopic dermatitis or something where the effects are quite readily uh, observable, but drug checking. So it's a health intervention whose utility kind of like antibiotic therapy is immediately observable. Um, so for example, there's been multiple times where I've personally checked someone's MDMA, let's say, only to find out that the ingredients in it was caffeine and fentanyl. So on account of this, you know, the service user would report being opioid naive, there was a very high potential that this particular drug check prevented an unintentional opioid overdose fatality. I would definitely agree. I do think that drug checking is a positive aspect to harm reduction. And I really do hope that it continues to become more widely available to the public. Um, in terms of checking a drug supply, for example, I do know that fentanyl test strips are a great resource for drug users uh, when checking their supply. They allow people to detect the presence of fentanyl in all different types and formulations of drugs. They're easy to use and expensive and oftentimes free through many harm reduction centers and very accurate. But what are the other technologies being used in drug checking and how does it differ from the use of fentanyl or xylazine test strips? Yeah, technology is a big aspect and consideration within drug checking. It's really what does provide the technical information. Well, I mean, just a quick disclaimer, when I'm speaking on drug checking uh, necessitates speaking about technology, te technologies inadvertently manufactured and distributed and sold by commercial companies. You know, I might mention specific brands or technologies, and that doesn't mean I favor or specifically endorse them. It's impartial in favoring whatever technologies are performing well or I have experience with um, or are ultimately serving this market in a meaningful way. 
just to speak a bit about different qualities of different technology. So an important one is qualitative versus quantitative. The fentanyl strip test, or you mentioned the xylazine test strip, they're a binary test. So they will be able to test a drug sample. And if the limit, if the analyte of interest is above the limit of detection, the fentanyl strip test or the whatever the strip test is, will um, give you a positive result. So it's a binary yes or no, if the analyte is present, it doesn't give you any information on quantification. It can't tell you the concentration of the amounts. It can tell you that it's above the limit of detection, but these strips can't tell you if it's very high potency of fentanyl present or just a trace amount. So that can be a blind spot of it. Sometimes these strips fall short and they aren't able to give any information on dosing. Um, so that can be a blind spot. So we, we rely on other technologies to kind of fill that in. Benzo strip tests can tell you if there's a benzo in there, but they aren't able to differentiate which benzo is there. There is something I kind of wrote in chapter three of the Dread Project Manual, which is on technologies and procedures, it talks about tiers of technology. So I find this is a really good way to discuss technology and to conceptualize it for people. Tier one, strip tests like benzo, xylazine, LSD, strip tests. So tier one is cheap, accessible, and it's easy to learn. Included in tier one as well, is color metric reagent testing. The liquid droppers that people drop on the substance and it changes the color. So you observe a qualitative change in the color and that can give you information on what is or isn't present in the drug sample. Again, doesn't give you any information on uh, quantification, quite subjective. So moving up from tier one to tier two technologies, there's a bit of a steeper learning curve. It's a bit of a higher powered technology. Technologies tend to be somewhat portable and the price point goes up as well. So these instruments right now are ranging around like the $50,000 range, quite the leap up from strip tests, which are sometimes a dollar or two a test. But with these tier two technologies, Fourier transform infrared or FTIR, spectroscopy or Raman spectroscopy, they're able to identify what the active ingredient is and sometimes pick out different diluents as well or bulking agents or other active ingredients quite helpful, although they do struggle with quantification as well. So that can be hard, especially of trace amounts of substances. Tier three, highly sensitive, and they really do require a technically competent team, like a university or hospital, to run them, oversee them, maintain them, typically immobile. And their price point is roughly over $200,000. So, and these include QNMR, or quantitative nuclear magnetic resonance or PSMS, uh, which is paper spray mass spectrometry. And these instruments are pretty great at quantifying. So um, they can tell you what's present in a down sample and they can tell you uh, percentages of fentanyl or different fentanyl analogs present and benzos and what their concentrations are. I think what's interesting here is the sort of we have fentanyl test strips that maybe you could buy at a pharmacy, you know, in the U.S. and you can pick them up and it'll tell you how to use it. But there's a lot of user error. It's only qualitative, yeah. but it tells you something. And we do have data that there are probably fewer non-fatal overdoses when people have fentanyl test strips. Where we live in Rhode Island, lots of things have xylazine on, which Ash just did a presentation to to a state committee. Maybe there's less fentanyl and there's more xylazine because it's a great cutting agent and the samples in those higher technologies of xylazine range between, you know, two and 20%. What's hard here is despite all this drug checking is that we rarely have that clinical correlation unless you've got, and this is why I like pharmacy-based drug checking is that not only do you have that trust that you build with the people, but 
now, and, and you can also have higher technologies in pharmacies, right? So you build that trust and you're going to talk about festivals and things, and then they can come to the pharmacy and then you can make an investment with whatever funding you have, be a surveillance point, but also be a point to talk to the people using their drugs, which is how you find out baseline about the drug supply that you correlate. So it's the subjective of the, of the person. It's the objective of whatever technologies you're using. But it really all starts with like getting something out to people to say, we, we know you're using drugs. Here, this is part of a harm reduction. And so I, I really see this as like all these things have their place and we still haven't figured. Yeah. And I think that's an important point you brought up too, is not discounting people's experiential knowledge. People with the best knowledge of the drug supply or drug users, getting people's for their experiences or adverse effects or how it's affecting them can really uh, inform what's in the substance. So I think that's that's important. And then, yeah, I mean, having this technology at a pharmacy level would be really interesting. And I know um, there's some movement in BC here. Um, there's a pharmacy that's piloting that. So that's that's cool. And I feel like there's a lot of yeah, objective information to be gained from that, for sure. And of course, you got to convince pharmacists that this is something that they want to do. So like, there's the bleeding edge pharmacist that that I would say, you know, you and your colleagues are, are doing like, we want to do everything, let's do it, let's pilot this stuff, regions, pharmacists, and there's pharmacists who are entirely resistant to anything, or they it needs to make money, or they need more staffing, all those other things. It's hard, so we need to get sort of a majority of people doing something stigma is always going to be a big big blank but you know i hope that naloxone has become normalized we'll eventually have over-the-counter naloxone which we which may normalize it more and then all the other services that go with that syringe sales drug checking fentanyl test strips all those things can be built on that now that we've sort of broken through to say hey everyone deserves to live here's a way to do this and there's other things that we can provide because we are professionals and can interpret these, you know, machines and things like that. Yeah. And I think it's not necessarily forcing it on pharmacies or pharmacists that don't want to do it. So there are definitely specialty pharmacies that focus on opiate replacement or other things um, that would be good candidates for this type of service. That's really interesting. I actually never really realized how many technologies were available for drug checking. Stemming off of that, which technologies do you most commonly see used or do you use when performing drug checking? Then can you maybe compare the cost, portability, user friendliness, or any other benefits and limitations that you do think are noteworthy? Done a fair amount of drug checking with color metric reagent tests, a variety of immunoassay test strips, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, which is kind of currently the workhorse of drug checking. And there's also Raman spectroscopy, um, which is kind of a similar technology that's uh, less utilized. Uh, there's surface enhanced Raman spectroscopy. There's gas chromatography mass spectroscopy and paper spray mass spectroscopy. Roughly, they all kind of fit in these tier one, tier two, tier three categories. So there's been quite the evolution of technologies at music festivals. The one festival that's been doing it for a very long time and has been very supportive is Shambhala Music Festival. And it is Chloe Sage, who is a co-author of the Dread Project as well. And she has been really championing drug checking work in Canada um, through organizing the drug checking tent at Shambhala. So this tent is kind of a highly sophisticated pop-up laboratory that last year tested over 18,000 samples uh, in a weekend, which is kind of wild. It is um, kind of cool. And yeah, I mean, over the years, they started with reagent testing and then um, got into FTIR testing. And now they kind of help pilot different instruments as well. Um, and I just want to point out to people who are interested, uh, there is a great paper by Leah Godzielski and the team at Substance in Victoria here, 
uh, that take a look at the different drug checking technologies out there. And they do a bit more of a compare and contrast. Thank you for discussing what drug checking is and the different technologies being utilized when checking substances. What is the process for checking drugs? If people possess illegal drugs, why would they give up their drugs to test? Yeah, those are some good questions. I guess we'll start with what is the process for checking drugs? So there's typically kind of three chunk steps. Um, so there's intake, there's testing, and then there's the result. Intake, um, someone, service user will come in, um, they'll say that they would like drug checking services, they'll say what they think their substance is, maybe there'll be some form of an intake survey if they've had any adverse reactions or experiences relating to the substance, you know, noting its color, its texture, uh, things like that, and kind of just um, yeah, doing that exchange of information and intaking the sample and keeping it um, distinct from others and labeled and things like that. Uh, and then it goes through the testing phase. Fentanyl strip tests are great. They're so sensitive. Uh, they're more sensitive, or they're as sensitive as tier three technologies. And uh, they're so cheap and accessible, so it's, it's great. Uh, they're a nice resource to have. So intake, if you receive the sample, you get information about it. Uh, then goes to the testing phase. So you use whatever technology is available and you get that information. The technician will kind of do the interpretation and get the kind of the overall analysis of what the substance contains to the best of their ability. And then the final step is the results. So uh, the service user will then receive the results depending on the drug checking service. It's maybe they wait around for the results and then you give it right back. Uh, you know, in festival context, uh, the person sits right in front of you as you do the whole test and everything, and then you give the results back. But yeah, so the results are given back, what the overall analysis is, uh, what the result is, as well as providing um, some harm reduction advice, safer use supplies or whatever the person's needs are. Why would people give up their drugs to test? Well, it depends who's testing. Some people are more um, able to give more of their substance to check and they're maybe in a privileged position to not care as much. Um, others, they want their substance back. So good news is the fentanyl strip tests require such a small amount of substance, um, maybe a milligram or two to be used. And FTIR is a non-destructive uh, test. So about one or two milligrams, you know, the size of a pinhead or something is needed to cover the sensor. And once the reading's done, that amount can be given back too, if that's of concern. So something similar to, you know, why people give up drugs. I think we've talked about a lot of, a lot of things. We've got more things to go here, but, you know, briefly, there's clearly the biggest problem here is, is, is law enforcement. And I think it goes on both sides, you know, at a pharmacy, someone's bringing elite, you know, illicit drugs in, or even in a hospital, we had to like, I remember a hospital I worked at, somebody brought cannabis in while it was still illegal, and they had to have some giant procedure to dispose of it because it was schedule one. So clearly, pharmacy or pharmacists or drug checkers need to work with law enforcement to not arrest people who are just trying to be safe. So what do you think is the best way to educate or have you been involved in educating law enforcement on the benefits of, of drug checking or harm reduction? Yeah, I mean, that is a uh, a point to talk about for sure, because, you know, working with law enforcement from a harm reductionist point of view can be tricky. Historically, kind of these camps have been a bit at odds. As you kind of touched on, harm reductionists are kind of trying to triage the outdated drug laws by providing care to people who use drugs, whereas law enforcement's role is to enforce the law. Sometimes they are enforcing these outdated drug laws. So it puts these groups kind of at odds. And I do think the current overdose and toxic drug supply crisis should be treated as a health 
crisis and not a criminal one. But it is tough when there are regulations or operating procedures and things relating to illicit substances that are quite onerous. The narrative that goes around sometimes that usually that comes from law enforcement, that if you even look at fentanyl, you'll overdose or, you know, don't look at it wrong. You will overdose if it's nearby, you will overdose or it can be transferred through the skin. Things just aren't true. There's a website called WT Fentanyl, what the fentanyl. Um, that debunks it. There's a medical doctor that's excellent. I want to say hullabaloo, but I don't think that's the word. Around fentanyl and overdose and stuff. And people have a fear of it, but in reality, it's like any other drug. Like it's not going to jump into your body. It has to be administered through uh, like a mucous membrane, like your nose or your mouth or eye or ingested orally or injected or crossing your skin somehow. But there's a paper from a pharmacist, I think in Wisconsin, who accidentally spilled fentanyl on his skin with an abrasion and he took a picture of it and the journal actually published the picture of his wet hand with fentanyl and he basically saying look I'm fine the mythos the hullabaloo these are things that it, it evidence is not going to convince people to change their mind it really has to be a, a different kind of kind of we talked a little bit about um you know the amount of substances and um and we talked a little about uh, maybe we're going to add a little more about the harm reduction hub at the music festival. So you, you talked about testing 16,000 samples, but what other things are often provided in that? Yeah. So at festivals, uh, you know, drug checking is kind of just one service that's provided, uh, but there's other kind of allied services. There can be other harm reduction provided, such as like ear protection, um, so earplugs for loud music to protect people's hearing. Um, lots of water is given out, um, sometimes fans for people to stay cool, um, safer sex supplies like condoms safer use supplies, like for snorting or smoking or injecting. Um, there can also be kind of sanctuary spaces where people can go to uh, when feeling overwhelmed by the festival experience, uh, whether substances are playing a part to that or not. So at these places, you can get a warm tea and a soft blanket and kind of just chill in the company of someone who is there. To keep. Other services at festivals include like medical. Um, so a lot of things they see is like rolled ankles or splinters, uh, but they also deal with more serious matters. And there's women's safe spaces um, where people can go if they feel uh, uncomfortable or just want to be um, on their own. There's also an interesting service at some festivals called Creep Patrol. So people kind of just walk in the festival and if they notice an uncomfortable situation or something kind of going on that looks off, um, they'll <laughs> interject and um, kind of start a conversation and ask them how their day is going, blah, 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 and kind of uh, intercede and um, just check in to see how people are doing. According to the Drug Enforcement Administration and American Addiction Center, cocaine is commonly adulterated with fentanyl and lidocaine, not only because they are easy to mask in the supply due to the similar powder, uh, but because it could also increase the drug's effects, giving the illusion that it may, uh, that someone may be receiving cocaine at a higher quality. What steps would you recommend to user in terms of testing a drug supply? Pretty much across the board that the major drug categories are actually fairly stable as a single ingredient. So that includes things like methamphetamine, uh, MDMA, LSD, ketamine, and cocaine actually are typically um, single ingredients. 5% of non-opioid samples, such as these ones, are actually positive for fentanyl. About 5 to 10% of the time, up to 20% of the time, there can be unexpected ingredients in there. So while well, you mentioned benzocaine, which is like a topical anesthetic, can be present in there. Ketamine, phenacetin as well, which is kind of a, a cousin of Tylenol or acetaminophen. Caffeine can be found in cocaine. Levimisole, which is a pig dewormer, that one's a bit more concerning. It actually can have negative health effects. 
And again, under 5% of the time, they're sentinel positive, but that's also from a Canadian context. And just to speak briefly on opioids, so this is a very different case. And this is where a lot of the heavy lifting of drug checking happens. So over 90% of down contains fentanyl. Uh, fluorofentanyl is very common, about 25 to 50% of the time. Uh, only about 2% of down contains heroin. About 40% uh, or half of down samples contain benzodiazepines, which is quite surprising for many. Um, and it's a trend that's quite consistent across the board. Bromazolam is the most common benzo. And then according to Canadian results, under 5% contain xylazine, under 5% contain nidazines, and under 5%, under 2% contain carfentanil. But Ashley, you asked what steps would you recommend to a user in terms of testing their drug supply? I would say it really depends on their location and what they have access to. Um, but doing what you can do with what you got, I guess. So if there's access to fentanyl strip tests and you're testing non-opioid samples, that's a great place to start um, to try to rule out fentanyl adulteration. Um, there's also, uh, speaking to your American audience, there's different mail-in services. Um, so I know drugsdata.org, uh, which is kind of the testing site of Arrowhead, does testing um, so they can do mail-ins. They have access to tier three technologies and it's quite, quite great. And we do have drug checking here. We do have testri.org, close colleague, Dr. Tracy Green. Her work at the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative in Massachusetts-based drug testing and our Rhode Island drug testing with our colleagues from the, the Cobray that uh, Tracy Green, Dr. Green uh, co-runs. We do have test strips that people can order from our harm reduction hub. So there's all those things. We will have an overdose prevention site opening in Rhode Island in January, and we'll get, learn more about that in a future podcast. Ashley, yeah, maybe you could talk about what's happening next with drug checking services. I would say that the amount of drug checking services has been increasing these past few years around the globe, uh, including the United States and Canada. So what would we expect in terms of drug checking in the near future? And what is being done to make sure drug checking is more readily available to drug users? Would there be something like a resource or website that people can check in the future to locate a drug checking site? Definitely drug checking is kind of expanding. Um, I mean, within Canada, there's kind of a bottleneck of training competent and confident drug checkers. Uh, so that's kind of what we've been trying to do with the DREAD project uh, through the manual and in-person trainings um, is get people kind of equipped to do this drug checking. Um, and the legals kind of shifting as well. People are kind of coming around to this idea. Um, unfortunately, the overdose rates are kind of driving these decisions and things, um, which is unfortunate it's come to that point, but um, maybe we can make some change uh, because of it. But yeah, to make things more readily available is kind of just buy-in um, from universities such as you guys, um, really legitimizes it and makes it a health service that is, uh, discussed and, um, like I said, legitimized, um, as opposed to historically it's been done underground due to its um, uh, illicit nature and unsanctioned nature. Um, so yeah, I think legitimizing it, talking about it uh, really helps forward this and uh, yeah, is a good place to kind of start. So what a great discussion on this week's episode of The Regimen. I learned a lot about drug checking and I hope that our listeners can say the same. And I would like to thank our guest, Jared, for his time today and providing such great insight in regards to drug checking. Yep, the regimen is let's make this bigger, bolder, better, and everywhere. That's what we should do. So hopefully we'll do that with uh, your generous donation of multiple hours of your time to record and plan and review our, our script here. Really appreciate you coming on and, um, and joining the the pod. What a, I really hope people get to listen to this and we use this as a way to 
advertise. So for all those listening, if this is your first regimen, listen, be sure to follow us on all of our social media. That's at PharmD Pub Health. That's P-H-A-R-M like P-H-A-R-M like pharmacist and D like doctor. PharmD Pub Health on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Turn on post notifications so you never miss an episode and smash that subscribe button. Listen on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Music, or Spotify, which hosts us or wherever listen, wherever you listen to podcasts. And since you're smashing the subscribe button on those, follow Jared's hesitant Twitter account as he describes it at Jared Austin. That's J-A-R-R-E-D A-A-S-E-N. That's two R's and two A's in that order. Not that order, but in a different order. His name, Jared Austin. So go show him some support. And also you can donate to his soon-to-be-published fundraiser at lanternservices.ca. That's lanternservices.ca. And we'll um, link the Dread book and all the other things in all our socials to promote all the work, all the excellent work you've been doing. Thanks so much. On the Dread Project website, dreadproject.ca, there will be an updated map that displays the sites that provide drug checking across Canada, including what technology they use. Uh, Check back soon for that.